Stand at ease, episode 26, Sunday, February 5th, 2012. They would blame it on something they did in their own lives that they were being punished for. And I know that I'm waiting for my phone to click off federal agent to come <laughs> busting down my door, but... How do you guys All keep yourself is- from being so angry and frustrated? If you are, basically suck it up and keep driving. Well, welcome back, everybody. Nice to have a great show coming up here. Pretty excited. But as always, over to my left, D. Bjorn Christian hailing from the, I guess, the soon-to-be ice fishing North Dakota. David, welcome back, buddy. Good morning. It's a lovely 19 degrees and sunny. And over to my right, James L. Johnson, Jr., hailing from the now-recovering Detroit, Michigan area. Welcome back, James. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. And we have Doc Bernie Duff coming back to us from Muskegon, Michigan, a couple of Midwesters. So other than uh, all of us Midwesters, I guess. uh, And anyways, Doc is back. David, would you be so kind as to uh, welcome Doc on board and give us some breakdown and and, uh, we'll we'll kick this thing off here this morning? Sure thing. I got sent Doc's information on Facebook through one of our loyal listeners, Chad Waring. He was a friend of Gar and mine, and Doc is doing, am I still there? Yeah, totally. Bring it on okay. board, buddy. Okay. My computer just locked up on me. It's Windows. Of course it locked up on you. <laughs> Let's edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Doc is doing some work in Vietnam with uh, working with people with Agent Orange and suffering from the effects of that. He is a... Army veteran. He was a medic in Vietnam back in the late 60s, and I'm excited to have him on the show today. Welcome back, Doc. Nice to see you, man. I'm excited to be here, too. I've got tens of tens of thousands of questions, but I want to... James usually does a nice job of, of, of kind of starting us out there. If you've got something, James, fire away. If not, I'm going to go ahead and hit it myself here. Well, l- let me uh, start out by saying this on it. You know, welcome back to Michigan. I understand you've been out of Michigan for some time. You actually lived in vietnam for how long actually i currently live in vietnam i'm staying in in the united states right now i've been there since about 2005 what prompted you to move back to vietnam interesting thing i I was kind of uh tricked into it actually i do paintings and uh, i was asked by a group uh uh, that were working on a hospital or a clinic in uh in chu lai vietnam uh for the, it's called the Sharon Lane Clinic, uh, and they wanted a painting done for that clinic. And they pretty much tricked me into coming over there. After I did the painting, they said, well, we want you to present this to the kids of Vietnam. And I'm kind of a sap that way. I, uh, I couldn't say no to the, to the kids of Vietnam, so I ended up going back. I see. Are, are you married to a Vietnamese woman? I wasn't at the time, but I am now. Uh, we ended up uh, meeting, you know, over there, and uh, we were working the same kind of work with the kids and with the poor people, and uh, we just uh, had a lot in common, so we ended up getting married over there, actually. Understand. Now, do you still do work for the uh, DAV? Uh, the, the DAV, as far That's as... the Disabled uh, Veterans? Yeah, I, actually, I'm a life member of the DAV, but I've, I'm, I don't really do a lot of work for the DAV. Uh, they, uh, I, I really, you know, I don't see much of them in Vietnam, so. Right, right. Now, it's a, and what prompted you to get into Agent Orange? That's something I find fascinating on it. Uh, I know that you probably know all about the background, but we flew from 1961 to 1971. We flew a little over 20,000 sorties. And uh, from what I understand, we dropped about 19.5 million gallons of Agent Orange in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Very true, very true. And you see the effects of that not only with the soldiers here, but a lot of uh, the people over there kind of get, you know, left out of the equation because, you know, the studies that are done or the treatment that's done is pretty much on people over here. Uh, people well, over there. Well, Vietnam has good. the highest cancer rate of any country in the world. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. 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 That's that's interesting. That's interesting. It, what, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say on it. What got you? Do you suffer from any of the effects of Agent Orange? 
I've uh, I've had uh, some of the cancer, but uh, mine is like minimal compared to uh, the stuff I see over there. I had a, uh, my brother-in-law ended up uh, dying from uh, Agent Orange related cancer as well. Yeah, but that that all happened pretty much. Actually, my own cancer happened before, but uh, my brother-in-law he he ended up passing away in the middle of two separate walks that we did in Vietnam for Agent Orange. Really, prostate cancer or another type of cancer? He's, his was, uh, was all throughout his body. I'm, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly which one was initially diagnosed since I was over there when it all happened. I know I came down with prostate cancer uh, several years ago, and it was attributed to Agent Orange. I spent right. 66, 67, 68, 69 in uh, Vietnam. I was up in I-Corps practically the entire time with it. And that was one of the heaviest uh, saturated areas that there was. Now, three core also around Saigon got hit heavy with uh, Agent Orange defoliation. Exactly. Those were the yeah, two heaviest hit areas in Vietnam. And you're you're still seeing the the you know effects of that in Vietnam. The people living in those areas are still are still uh, some of the highest areas for for cancer. But it's not just cancer. There's so many, so many different things that you're seeing over there with the, with the people who are affected with it. And a lot of them, they have no idea what they have. They just, you know, keep on living life that way and feel like it's bad luck, you know. <laughs> well, I, I've got to tell you something. I think one of the reasons why we don't do a lot of studies over there is because we don't want to take responsibility for literally leaving a silent bullet that's destroyed a country and all of its inhabitants for decades now. I totally agree with that. I totally agree. We uh, we actually we did a, a walk back in 2008 called the Orange Walk. Uh, walked from uh, Saigon all the way to Hanoi, which is about 1,200 miles. We did so in about 57 days. But uh, we we made a film of this uh, of the walk that we did, and we put together a 17 minute clip, which we delivered uh, to uh, um, we went we went to uh, the Senate and and to uh, and to the House of Representatives and dropped off this little tape and uh, one of the one of the uh, representatives uh, came up to us and told us that uh, this is pretty much on the sly. He told us he says you know he says you know I, I totally understand what you're doing here. He says but uh, he says when when we all we have to do is mention Agent Orange in either the Senate or the House and it's like bringing up a dirty word. Nobody wants to hear it. So, yeah, well, look you're exactly how long, right. Look how long, Doc. Yeah, look how long it took for the government to recognize Agent Orange. I mean, there was over 3.2 million estimated that served in Vietnam, exactly. Americans, that mm -hmm. uh, have some type. They don't all. It depends on the area that they're in and how much uh, they came in contact with it. But there are so many diseases that they don't even want to talk about that are related to Agent exactly. Orange. Exactly. And the reason why is because they're paying through the ass right now for guys like me on it who came down with cancer, which there was no other reason for me to come down with it. I mean, it, cancer basically is an environmental disease. And exactly, exactly. You spend that much time in an area. I mean, hell, I remember the planes on it. You know, the, the operation was called Operation Ranch Hand, the Air Force. They're the yeah. ones that flew all the uh, sorties. But you could see them when they were dropping, and we were right underneath them. I mean, it, it was just incredible, particularly with the heavy yeah, foliage areas. Yeah, I had the same kind of experience with that. Actually, I had a friend who was uh, he was he was on one of those flights. He he uh, he was part of the crew that was uh, was dropping the Agent Orange out, and he said that uh, you know, there's no way of proving this now after the fact, but he said that they had a sign up that was on the wall in that plane that said, "Don't let." Just come into contact with your skin because it could cause cancer. <laughs> he's uh, he's 100 percent for Agent they knew Orange. They time on it. You know, Agent Orange goes back to 1940s. That's how long that they were playing with this thing, trying yeah. to perfect it. Exactly. I mean, a lot of people don't realize. It. You know where the name Agent Orange came from, Gar? I don't actually. Yeah. It was a okay. band on the drums. It was a code name for it. There was an orange band on all the. Uh, drums and chemicals, so they called it Agent Orange. Interesting. That's where it came from. That's really not what uh, the stuff is. It's a 50-50 mixture of two different chemicals, which are deadly to uh, humans. So, 
if I, well, if I could it, add on to that, there were some other there there were other barrels as well with the other strips, and we we saw people who were suffering from from uh, other ailments, uh, the chemical related uh, ailments from those, such as the Agent White. Uh, mm-hmm. We you go to different parts of the country and they use the different different types of chemicals, and you could see the the different types of things that they were suffering from, which it was entirely different from the other areas. Also denied. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Vietnam was divided into four different areas. They were I-Corps, II-Corps, III-Corps, and IV-Corps. And I-Corps, which is up by the DMZ, uh, they were the heaviest hit. And what was so surprising was III-Corps, which is Saigon and Ben Hoi and countries like, or cities like that, they needed that completely defoliage because they wanted to see what was around. You know, it's it's uh, I don't know. And then the water system there. I mean, it's just incredible. You know how they how we jacked up not only there but Laos and Cambodia because we did a lot of spraying over there too. That's all still in the ecosystem there too, by the way. I was going to ask that question. How, I mean, I I don't imagine there's no half life. It's just there, right? It doesn't it doesn't go away. It doesn't go well, away. It doesn't go away. They've got some groups that are working for the cleanup. And the United States is now, uh, just recently, they're, they're now starting to spend some money to try to clean these areas up. Uh, because the, peri- the people that live, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, the, the like areas around Saigon, Benoit, places like that where they mix it up, the, the families that live in that area, it, it's, it's, they all have cancer. And... For years and years, they had no idea why they were getting sick or anything like that. Uh, for the most part, they were they they would blame it on something they did in their own lives that they were being punished for, and so there were a lot of suicides and things like that, which also left a lot of the children in orphanages who were affected with Agent Orange because these these families were blaming themselves for what happened. Uh, and, and you know the same thing like you mentioned in Icor. I live actually up just north of the DMZ now, uh, and we we treat fam- you know people up in that area. There's a one particular family that comes to mind that there were 15 kids born, and out of the 15, 12 had died from Agent Orange. The other mm-hmm. three are grossly affected. So it's just that's just one case where we've seen many, many, many more. Well, you, you said something that's fascinating, and most people, a lot of our listeners, because we're listened to all over the world, won't understand that. People in this area, a lot like some of the Japanese, you know, they, they have a high suicide rate too. But Vietnam, I think it was, oh, let me search my memory banks there. I think it was uh latter part of 1990 had one of the highest suicide rates of any uh, country around in the Asian area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I found that interesting. And it, like you say, true, they yeah, blame I, themselves. You know, it's, oh, it's bad luck. This is what happened because of my ancestors and this and that. I mean, that's just their belief. They don't understand that, no, this stuff was caused by a chemical. That's right. What kind of, that's right. What, kind of, what kind of things do they do to clean up the, uh, the after effects of the Agent Orange and the other agents? You know, I'm not really sure exactly how they go about doing that because a lot of that area is blocked off. We, uh, when we were filming this, uh, this, uh, you know, little movie that we were making for the Asian Orange Walk, uh, we we stuck in a couple of Vietnamese uh, um, photographers, and they were filming some of this stuff. I, I'm not being, I'm not technical enough to know exactly what they were doing, but there was a an outside uh, company from another country that was doing this. Well, you, you know, one of the big problems that you have, you can't clean up that area that way. I mean, this stuff was layered and layered and layered. It sunk into the water table. I mean, it's uh, you, there's no way for them to clean up the amount of chemicals that they dropped in that area. And it stayed there for years and years. The, the people that and we're, getting... you know, part of what we did when we were walking was we, we were trying to focus in on a lot of the younger kids that were still being born. Uh, in those areas, and they they are in fact, you know, one of the, one of the, a lot of people ask me, Doc, how many kids do you have? And I tell them, Well, I work with three million, so I think I consider I've got three million <laughs> kids over there that I work with, and they're my kids. They're all my kids. So they're the three hundred about three million kids is what they estimate are affected with Agent Orange. 
Every uh, now, tell me something. So, um, if you take a look at the population of the people who started to get sick, is it like everybody started to get sick, or was it mostly uh, after like birth rates, or is it a continual problem? It's not like the, the people that would be what we call the baby boomers, for example, that would be uh, of that age when uh, that happened, your age. But or, or is it just even new births are still being affected by the residual part of this uh, garbage? It's still it's still new births. One of the things that they had told us uh, from way back, the studies that they were doing was that they suspected that it was uh, in, in the DNA. It would go back, uh, you know, three generations. But they have no way of knowing how many generations that affects. We see three generations, and they are still being born and. As far as an age group, there's no specific age group that we see because it comes in, it's, it's an ongoing type thing. Here's some okay. of the things that I, I found out. See, I, I didn't connect Agent Orange with cancer. In fact, whenever I was diagnosed with cancer, I didn't think I had anything. You know, but by the time they were done, I was into stage three and they were sending me home to get my affairs in order. But. Uh, it does alter your DNA, and that's what concerns me about children and grandchildren and things of this nature. You don't realize the damage that had been done to you. It's a silent killer that affects generations. That's what cancer does. It alters your uh, DNA, and you, you just don't know, particularly in an area like that, because they don't get the medical attention that we get over here. Nothing close to it. No. Uh, what are the, the things that we were doing? We, we were collecting money just just so people could go out and, and get a lab, uh, some lab work done where they could determine what it was that was was ailing these people. They many, a lot of people would come up to us and they say, "Well, Doc, how do you know that the people that you're working with are affected with Agent Orange?" And in a lot of cases, we don't know, but we could care less because we could see the symptoms because. You know, you mentioned the cancer, and cancer is like only one aspect of what the uh, Agent Orange does. I mean, there's there's the people with the real shortened uh, limbs and and uh, hydrocephalus, things like that with the big heads, and you know, lots lots of different things that they're suffering from. But during our our walk, we decided that the next trip we wanted to. Yes, we went through Vietnam. We went. We actually took motorbikes and went around the entire perimeter of Vietnam. And then we took the bikes and went into Laos. And once we crossed the border into Laos, we stopped seeing anything. So they, it, it's not a scientific study, but we just did this for our own, you know, uh, peace of mind. And we, we saw nothing like what we saw in Vietnam. Interesting. Well, it's like, it's like you said, whenever you went to Congress, I mean, the United States government is not going to raise their hand and say, oh, yeah, we're responsible for X amount of people. I mean, we literally... Literally talk about mass genocide on a large level on it that's slow and lasts for generation after generation. That's exactly what we did. And I know that I'm waiting for my phone to click off and a federal agent to come <laughs> busting down my door. But it, it's a truth. I mean, we did that. It, it's, not a, it's not a big secret. Anybody who has any kind of sense at all and can read can understand the amount of damage, collateral damage that we did. I I totally agree. When they were when they were, you know, I, I'm not a backer of what Saddam Hussein did by any means to his own people with the chemicals, but but I didn't see a great deal of difference between what he had done and what we were doing to to the Vietnamese people as well as to our own people with Agent Orange. Well, you see, that's the thing that I find difficult for me as a, an American and as a combat veteran from the Vietnam era. They knew. So what they did, they made a, a conscious decision to say, okay, we can defoliage this area, make it a little bit easier for combat reasons, and we can spot the enemy quicker, and we can knock out more of their roots and et cetera, things like this by defoliaging. Well, come on, give me a break here. You exposed all your troops to it. You exposed the populations. They knew. They knew. They knew exactly what they were doing. And it was a poor decision. How do you guys keep yourself from being so angry and frustrated? I mean, you have to think about this stuff. You guys are trouncing around on that garbage. And um, I, 
are you I mean are you angry? You know, I don't know if you want to call it angry. Uh, I was disappointed whenever I found out about it. You know, I wasn't really angry. I didn't uh, think about going off on the deep edge. I think that a lot of the kids on it who were in Desert Storm and various conflicts in the Middle East, I think they suffer from some of this chemical exposure. You start getting into chemicals, it's a different world altogether. It becomes a silent killer. It's something on it that can affect you years down the road. Keep in mind, when they diagnosed me, I was about as healthy as a man could be. And I had no pains, no nothing else. But the cancer had already spread from my prostate, through my body with it. Fortunately, it didn't go into my bones, or I would have been dead by now. But uh, I, I still suffer from uh, the side effects of the treatment. Sometimes the treatment's worse than, than the disease is. So that's me, and I've had some of the best medical help that uh, money could buy. Now, what about these people who live out in the damn villages? They don't get shit. They just roll over and die. It's just that simple. Yeah. And seemingly, nobody, nobody cares either. <laughs> you care. And we care. You got it. Yep. That's what, a, it's, it's a, it, what amazes me, I mean, it, it's, uh, I, it's just being back in the United States, I, I, I bring up this subject a lot of times, and I tell people what I do in Vietnam, and you see the, the blank expressions on their faces, you know, the, especially the younger, younger people in their twenties or whatever, and they they have no idea what Agent Orange even was or is, and that's that's one of the purposes that I think most of the, the Vietnam vets, you know, I, I it's the way we deal with this anger is that we want to educate people about what's going on. Well, if you're not a Vietnam vet, or you're in a family of a Vietnam vet who is aware of Agent Orange, it means nothing to you. Right. It doesn't register. That's why you get that blank stare or scare when people are talking about it. They can't relate to it. It's nothing that, uh, first off, the government did a great job of keeping this as quiet as they could. If it hadn't been for the amount of veterans who were involved in this, they would have done nothing. There's no doubt in my mind about that. But because there were so many people that were exposed, and the American Legion, the DAV, uh, I, mean, I can go on and on. Any veteran organization got behind us, and for years, I mean years, they fought and fought and fought. And finally the government gave in, because they didn't want to spend the money. You know, that's, that was the problem. They didn't want to spend the money. But what about the families? I mean, this is, uh, and I'm talking about here in the United States. I can't even, I can't even fathom what goes on in Vietnam. I mean, uh, I have no desire to go back there. Quite honest with you, I'm, I'm impressed by people like yourself who do go back there and visit. But my memories there are not the best memories in the world, so I don't have any desire to go back to that area. But I do feel, as a human being, I reach out to those people because I know that they're literally fucked. It's just that simple. They're going to continue to die, and their generation after generation will continue to die. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but this is the collateral damage that war brings. Which is unfortunate because we find ourselves in a situation in which we will buy a new weapon system, we will buy a new missile system, we will, without understanding that the last system of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago is causing and may continue to cause forever birth defects in an entire population of people, and you think about that, you know? Well, what about Japan? They're still not talking about all the effects that it has on the Japanese people after we dropped the atomic bomb there. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's funny you bring up the Japanese, because the Japanese, uh, they're probably our biggest supporters uh, for uh, the Agent Orange uh, effort that we have going on in Vietnam. We had a few of the uh, Japanese people that were walking with us, and... Uh, in the future, one of the walks that we have planned will be between Nagasaki and Hiroshima to, to uh, bring them into this more and, and to uh, we can grieve together, actually. And, and, and these, these walks and things like that, they, kinda, they, they help people heal. Uh, maybe not physically so much, but at least uh, internally, you know, the, the, the mental aspect. 
Yeah, I, I, I can I can relate to that. I really can. I mean, if you look at some of the nuclear spills that we've had in Russia, I mean, entire cities are still uninhabitable because of meltdowns. Sure. We haven't even begun to feel the effects of what happened in Japan with their meltdown and their n- nuclear factory. I mean, it's uh, these are all things that Big Brother... And I can see someone pulling up in my driveway now in, in a black limousine. So, but Big Brother on it, uh, they don't want you to know this stuff. That's what pisses me off. Jim, they'd be and in the They don't idea. feel that you're intelligent enough or you're, you know, they don't want you to respond. They don't want you to react. Yeah. So we want to keep it quiet, you know. And I think the thing about it is that as more and more time goes by, one of the things that works in their favor is that the people who do know this stuff and who are uh, majorly concerned about this get older and they start dying off. So if in fact, okay, I'm I'm born in '64. All right, I know what Agent Orange is. I know what Agent Orange is simply because I remember my uncles, uh, be, Vietnam vets, being part of it. Jim, you you were part of it. Now what's going to happen when we go? Which or start to. It'll be pushed. We won't even talk about it. It'll be like, uh, you know, I sit. You, you sit down there and watch all of these World War II films. We sank an entire tanker filled with oil on its way to such and such, uh, you know, cutting off the supply lines and bring. You sank an entire tanker full of oil. What? What is it? Where, where did that tanker full of oil go? You know, I mean, it went on the beaches. I mean, it, even though it's in black and white, we you, you think about the carnage. To the planet and the people that are living there, just simply mustard gas. These are people in France that are still digging up mustard gas for Pete's sake and getting sick. I mean, they still, yeah, they still have containers there, and whenever those containers rupture and they're opened, it infects a certain area. This is why I think in some of the Gulf Wars, and nobody will talk about it, but that's one of the issues that uh, when the military came back, they had problems that were unexplainable and the government didn't want to talk about it you know let me ask you something both of you actually all three of you are involved with children you know there's something called attention deficit disorder that all of a sudden on it has got a tremendous amount of play where in the past it didn't has it always been with us or has it been my generation that came back who were exposed to various things who have had kids on it that uh, they have those issues it well, gets passed on, you know. That is something I discuss in my uh, developmental psych classes quite often. And one of the reasons that we do see an increase in ADD and ADHD diagnosis is we have better diagnostic tools for them. Um, we all had that kid in our class that couldn't sit still and, you know, was slightly disruptive or whatever you have. And back then we had teachers who had the tools to deal with those classroom management um, issues, but now teachers are are taught to respect the child's self esteem and all that other horse shit. And instead of dealing with the issues, they they tell the parents, "If your child is going to be in my class, I got to be medicated." Oh, sorry, that's one of my <laughs> that's one of my. Oh no, no, I listen. Uh, I understand. I mean, I'm not big into any type of medication. Because sometimes treatments are worse than whatever diseases that you have. You know, I mean, it's a big trade-off. And I know we're going to have listeners saying, oh, my God, you're against this and that. So, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm talking about generalities here, and I'm talking about Agent Orange. And people don't understand the long-lasting effects. Doc, you do. You've walked the roads. You've walked the trails. You see the residual effects from a war that lasted for 15 years or more, you know, and it's still going on because we contaminated the hell out of the area, so particularly I-Corps and, and Three-Corps. One, one of the questions I have, Doc, is what type of birth defects are very common with uh, the re- effects of Agent Orange? Yeah, well, we as, talk- as I mentioned, I'll go ahead. Well, we mentioned hypercephala, the the uh, shortening of limbs and so, but are there others that as well, like uh, mental retardation issues or anything like that? Yes. Mental retardation is a big one. Uh, a lot of times you'll see that uh, also with the uh, agent white. Um, but I mean, you'll see all kinds of different things. There's uh, one, one little girl that comes to mind that was born without eyes and 
I can always, in my mind, I mean, it burned an impression on me where she's, uh, she was uh, clawing at those eyes and she was crying, but there were no tears coming down because she had no tear ducts. And you, you just see these kinds of things all the time, but that's one. I mean, there's, there's any number, but it's a lot of it having to do with the limbs being shortened or, or just really scrawny, like they can't walk or, or twisted. They have twisted arms or, or legs. And, and, you know, it's just, they're, it's like they're all clustered in one area, you know. And um, you, what's remarkable is you'll see that, you know, a lot of people will think, you know, you'll only see that in the South where, where this all happened. But you got to remember that the, that the soldiers in the North were also down in the South. So their kids, consequently, today are all affected up in the North, too. So it's throughout the country. If you were to if you were to uh, to say something and and for the people who are just because there are going to be people who are listening to this and will be hearing about Agent Orange for the first time. For those of us that lived in that period of time post Vietnam, we know about Agent Orange and we're learning more and more as we go. But what would you say to that first time listener, that young vet or family of a vet who's tuning in in their twenty somethings? And they're hearing about this Agent Orange effect for the first time. What would be some of your advice for them if they're interested in pursuing this uh, further and learning more about it? Where do you begin the process of learning about Agent Orange? Well, there's a lot of a lot of things online. Um, the VA is actually coming around more and more with more information concerning Agent Orange as well. At least as far as the accepted things that are that are uh, are you know affecting people here. Um, as far as in Vietnam, there's there's a very little information over here going on, you know, about that. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I had thought about it, but I hadn't really seen it until I actually went over there, and then it really affected me. It was things that I couldn't ever forget. Uh, we we continually try to put things out uh, on on Agent Orange, at least wise, because you know when they say <laughs> pictures worth a you know a thousand words. When when you actually see this stuff, uh, the photograph still doesn't do it justice. On my on my uh, Facebook site, I have a, a small video there that shows a couple uh, things that we had seen along the route. Route, but uh, oh my gosh, it's it's if you see it, that's the thing that really grabs you. I mean, it's I, su- I suppose the people going to Somalia and some of the uh, African nations had the same thing, uh, but. Online, I suppose, there's this is about the best source to find anything out right now. How are you able to um, make a survivable uh, life doing what you're doing there? Are you supported financially by a, a group, or are you uh, having to work there on the local economy? How do how do you make it while you're there? Well, I'm a I'm a totally disabled vet myself. I have PTSD, uh, but I also have the Agent Orange issue. They don't pay me for that one, but. Uh, I also get Social Security disability, but between those two sources, uh, it provides me enough income in Vietnam to live okay, but it also allows me out of my pay to build houses for the for the people who are living in the streets with the eight range and things like that. We can we can actually build a house in Vietnam for two thousand dollars for somebody if they've got property. Uh, so consequently, it's. The way that it's gotten lately is most of it comes out of my own paycheck because uh, in the United States, everybody economically is pretty much uh, tuned to themselves and what's going on over here now. So we don't get the, the contributions like we used to. What um, when you have what, what do the um, the Vietnamese think about? I I suppose you, but what do they think about us at the moment? They love the Americans. <laughs> It's really an amazing thing. When when we did the Orange Walk in 2008, it allowed us to uh, we, we get a real taste of the country because you know it's one thing riding by on a bus like a lot of the tourists do, or flying from one area to another, and you'll see the area the you know the the people who are used to dealing with tourists that way. But when you walk, you walk through little rural areas that many of them haven't seen Americans before, and the ones that that remember Americans or that that uh, you know they they've heard about Americans or or even you know they've met Americans. They come running up to us all the time, and they just uh, 
kids are kids. So when the kids see it, it doesn't really matter. They're always tugging on our shirts and they'll say, hello, hello, hello. And they all want to learn English. And um, it's it's an amazing thing. It's just, you just want to reach out and hug all of them. But, uh, you know, we would run into pockets, you know, where, where people were very bitter. Uh, those are really minimal, though. I mean, I, I think that's... I see it the other way around in the United States more than I do over there where the, where people here, uh, are real anti-Asian. But when you get over there and, and, and you see these people, I, I mean, I, I looked at some of the ones that were, were, they tended to be a little bit bitter. It, you know, I, it came to mind that, you know, you don't know, you know, what that person has gone through to, to have that feeling. I mean, their entire family may have been killed by American people and, you know, you just got to keep that in mind. And one of the biggest healing things I, that I've found, at least for my PTSD and for others that, that have come over there to to, uh, to visit uh, Vietnam, is that they meet with their former enemy and they find out that the people there are not the monsters that we built them up into in our, in our brains over the years. And it takes all of that that imagery that was in your brain out and, and replaces it with these gentle people that you see are suffering from the very things that we suffer from. And they love, they hate, they, they smile, they, they cry. Everything is, it, they're human beings just like we are and they feel. And that's the thing. I think that when we went to basic training, we, they left that part out that, that people feel. <laughs> well, you, you know what's so funny, Doc, because you served uh, as a, a corpsman, a medic, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So you treated, uh, were you at a hospital or were you out in the field? No, I was in the boonies. <laughs> you, you were where? I was in all the over the place. I was out. I, I never made it. I, I dropped people off to a hospital, but I never worked in one over there. Well, then, then you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you, you get a lot of wounds, a lot of treatment with it. I never hated yeah. anybody. And I don't know of any of the guys that I served with that ever hated anybody. And, you know, God, I mean, I, I can't even count the people I killed over there. It's, uh, yeah. and I never hated them. It was just uh, my function. That's what I was trained to do. Exactly. So, and the people, yeah, and the people themselves, I always found them to be warm. Now, after saying that, the next day I might have had to have killed one or two of them, but at the time they all seemed to be warm towards you. Now, are the kids still smoking left and right down there? I, I've got to ask that question. No, not not the way they were. Uh, you you still will see it in in some places, you know, the bigger cities or something like that. But for the most part, no. In fact, anytime the, anytime the we got around kids, just, all they wanted was uh, chocolate and cigarettes. <laughs> no, just normally now it's just adult men. You you don't even see the women hardly smoking over there. Really? Okay. But they will smoke everywhere. <laughs> I've seen them smoking in <laughs> elevators. They smoke in hospitals. It doesn't matter where. Wherever they want to smoke, they do it. <laughs> hey, Doc, can I, can I take you back just a, just a little bit to um, a time period, a little snapshot in time? You, you were told uh, you'd, you'd done this painting, uh, that you'd talked you into going back over to Vietnam. Talk to us about that period when... For the very first time, obviously you you've seen some ugly nasty, much like Jim, and your 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 plane lands and the wheels touch down and you're getting ready to step out of that aircraft after having been home safely and had a lot of years to reflect upon it. What was running through your mind as you exited that aircraft door and started this journey that you were on? What was running through your mind back then? I'll back it up just a little bit because I was still on the plane <laughs> and and we were coming in of all places we were landing in Hanoi which was the you know the 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 capital of the enemy and looking down on these these rice paddies below first of all there comes a rush of memories there and then you look down and you see these people in black pajamas with a little cone uh, cone farmer's hat on top of their heads and Everything. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to have flashbacks, but I was lucky enough when I when I went back that I went back with uh, 17 other uh, veterans, Vietnam vets, and it was an amazing thing because these guys were all also uh, members of uh, 911. They were former firemen and, and police officers from that as well. But they had also brought two orphan kids that had been adopted in the United States uh, a couple years prior to that, and this is their first trip back. 
and they were bringing them back with the group. And what was remarkable to me is I I could hear, hear the little girls jumping up and down, and they said, as we were coming in over this area, I can see it, I can see it, we're going to land, oh my God. And they were all excited. So for 17 guys that were that were on that flight with me, we all felt like, like these dads to these two little girls. And it, it allowed us to to become part of that, that system. But, you know, now to get back to your original question, when we landed and we, we got out of the plane at that, that time, uh, back in 2005, the things were a little you know stricter and uh, the military was standing there at the airport. And in my mind, the only thing I could think about is how are they going to find a way to lock me up? You know, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're, we're fed this story about the communism and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's intense and, you know, there's no rights or anything like that. When, to a degree, that's true. But it has lightened up over the years. But I'll tell you, I was petrified when I first got there. But 21 days later, when I came back to the United States, I didn't want to leave because I had changed inside. And, and I saw things that, you know, I, I was able to touch bases with the, with the child I left behind. That that seventeen or I'm sorry, the nineteen year old boy that was 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 playing medic in Vietnam, you know, all of years before. But uh, it was great. It was after the twenty one days. It was the best thing I ever did in my life. Did you go to the uh, Hanoi Hilton uh, Museum when you were? Yes, uh, and I, yeah. I, I would. I would never advise anybody to go to that place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why do you say that? Because it's full of propaganda. Oh, really? Yeah, you, you, when you go to places like that, I mean, they they still the government still uses that. They're 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 easing up on this a lot because they're really becoming more pro U.S. every day. But when you go to those places, they have these pictures of the guys playing volleyball, and they they show these pictures of how well the guys were treated there, and then how bad. A lot of people don't know this, but the Hanoi Hilton, prior to the United States soldiers being uh, held there, the French used to hold the Vietnamese there, yeah. and they were tortured. So they show they show the the Vietnamese being tortured, and then we came in and how good they treated us. <laughs> well, so, unfortunately, yeah, I, I, uh, the French taught the Vietnamese a lot about torture, and that then turned exactly. yeah that turned over along with the Japanese. They taught the Vietnamese an awful lot about it, also. So. Exactly. That, that's fascinating. I've talked to a couple of guys who've gone back to Vietnam, and uh, they told me the same thing. What you just said, but they were all they were all touched by it, and uh, I get it. I guess it is a healing moment for a lot of people. Something, Jim, that you're not interested in. Jim, oh, go ahead. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, you're not interested in going back. No, no, I don't want to go back. No need in that. Gotcha. My, my time there was, it, it was different. So, but at any event, uh, I'm really proud of what you're doing, that's for sure. It, let me uh, drop back a minute and get off the Agent Orange subject and move into when you were in Grand Rapids and you worked with uh, disabled vets trying to find, or homeless vets. Sure. Why is it that... And maybe you know, maybe you've seen statistics, but why is it, uh, I have just a two-part question, that we have so many homeless veterans, and when you go into the military, you're trained to take care of yourself. You're trained to be a survivor. You're given certain skills that only the military can give you. But yet, there's a large portion of veterans who come back who end up being homeless when they don't need to be homeless because they have family that they just won't stay with. They want to be by themselves. And, of course, they go off into drug binges and, and alcohol binges and as you worked with them what was your experience you know you you, uh, you touched on a lot of reasons why why they're there you know just as you said that uh, a lot of the guys okay you know you've got vietnam era and then now the, the afghanistan and the iraq a lot of these guys are just you know that they're in that same group now and it's a lot of them the guys that I dealt with, they had issues in their minds that they're going to be fighting that war for the rest of their lives. And as far as, you know, part of what my job was was to get out there and, 
and reassure these guys that there is treatment for this. You know, you can go out there and, and you can you can uh, you can actually learn how to cope with a lot of what's going on in your mind. Uh, well, one of the problems with the treatment is you have to accept the fact, and that's one thing that's drilled into your head. You're supposed to be a man. You're supposed to suck it up. You're supposed right. to keep moving forward. You're not supposed to show any signs of weaknesses. And that's one of the reasons why so many don't get treated. That's uh, particularly true with the, I know you guys are Marines, but the Marine Corps really pushes that with their guys. And consequently, a lot of my my uh, clients were former Marines. And they're under a bridge, a lot of them. And, you know, they, they you know, get back if I were to just use one word on this that would be trust they do not trust society yeah yeah well you know one of the things that I wanted to ask about was your paintings had um, have you always been an artist or was that something you came upon after you got out of the service well no, actually, my dad was an artist before me, and I remember just as a kid looking, looking at what he did and wanting to be able to do the same thing myself as I grew up. But um, while I was in the in the military, I was in for uh, ten years. But the last two and a half years, I was an army illustrator. So I worked for the newspapers doing illustrations and uh, had, had a couple cartoon strips and things like that. But uh, got out of the actually out of the military, and actually when I stopped stopped working basically i uh, ended up going back and getting a fine arts degree too so uh, but i never really thought about doing military paintings uh you know after after my service time i never thought about getting back and doing you know vietnam memories and things that uh, related to uh to uh, the healing part of uh, uh what painting can do until after i i uh, had the ptsd and started putting it together in my mind that there's a I need to get the poison out of my head. When did, when you started working with vets, how how old were you? What when did you say I'm going to start working with homeless vets? Because obviously, if you ended in 2005, and we'll talk about your award mm-hmm. that you received, but how old were when were you when you got into it? You were how old? Actually, I was working. Uh, I stopped working when I was uh, in the year 2000. So. Um, it was I was, you know, middle aged guy that was uh, actually uh, I finally got into uh, working. I, I took the test, uh, state test, to to work with uh, veterans, but uh, they placed me. They placed me working with uh, homeless vets, and uh, as I think I mentioned to one of you guys that uh, uh, what was funny is when I when I first went to work uh, with the homeless, my boss told me don't spend a great deal of time working with these people because they don't really want to work anyway. And uh, actually, I took that as kind of an offensive line, you know, and I didn't like what he had said then because I disagreed. And really... Well, I'd, have, I'd have probably read work, bitch slapped him. I read that too. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a little upset with the statement. So, yeah. you know, fortunately, I didn't listen to him too well and ended up leading the United States in veterans hires for the following three years as a result of his statement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, your PTSD did. That started hitting you probably in your 30s and then creeped up a little oh, bit man. in your 40s. I don't know that there was. See, I stayed in for. Uh, I was in Vietnam and I came back from Vietnam in January of 1970. And I stayed in the military until uh, the end of 1976. And that was kind of like staying within the womb, you know, because I was surrounded yeah. with other people that were were you know in similar situations and you don't you know you don't even think about it then exactly. but i think in the in the 80s i really started um i started having problems with it and i was still in my 20s yeah you know, didn't you know what there's, name was. There's, that, there's that little closet that your mind takes you to sometimes and uh, you can't mm-hmm. find the door to get out of that closet until you reach over and grab your balls and squeeze them hard and then you <laughs> the door the door opens up for you so yeah, that's you're still, true. You're that's still fighting that? Uh, I don't actually, since I went back to Vietnam, the, you know, and I and I deal with the Agent Orange issue with the people over there, it's uh, it's helped me out a lot. I'm not saying, you know, PTSD doesn't ever go away. I still have the problems, but 
it certainly allows me, when I see people that have it so much worse off than I do, I, I really have trouble moping off on my own and feeling sorry for myself. Well, you, you know, one of the things that uh, people don't understand with PTSD is that <clears throat> it never does leave you. You just have to right. find a way to make peace with it and That's peace right. with the different things in, around you. I don't know whether you felt uh, surges of violence kind of cover oh, your yeah. body or not, uh, but it, it affects everybody differently. And sometimes that violence, it's just so spontaneous and you lash out at someone mm-hmm. who you wouldn't normally lash out that strongly to. Or I don't know if you've ever had any physical uh, altercations with people on it, but you you find that you're much more violent. I mean, yeah. all of a sudden, your mind just goes blank, and you need to pull back out of it real quick. Otherwise, somebody could be laying there dead. So, well, you revert back to your military training. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Well, just, what takes I, place a lot of times with people and... and they just don't understand it, you know. I know for a long time, sometimes uh, I would look at different situations and mentally work them through my mind, even though uh-huh. I didn't actually commit what I was thinking about, you know. And it happens spontaneously to you. And you're just, uh, it's... One of, one of my young Marine vets. Am I still here? Yeah, you can keep going, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got a uh, young Marine vet in one of my classes, and he just he just got out within the last year and a half. And uh, he was telling me that you know with, what the military is doing now with PTSD, you know they they've had so many things coming up that they they will sit you down. I think he said once a month with a with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and they'll ask you how are you feeling? Are you feeling any of these effects of of the PTSD or ASD, um, a lot of people don't realize there's two different levels of it. ASD is acute stress disorder, which is what happens within the first six months after the whatever the causing event is, and PTSD is six months post. Mm-hmm. But they'll they'll sit and talk with the the soldiers, Marines, and airmen and sailors, and ask how they're feeling. And while they're talking to and counseling the young service member, what they're doing is they'll ask, are you feeling the effects while they're saying, asking that question, they're shaking their head. No. So they're giving this nonverbal communication to the young, young service person to, if you are basically suck it up and keep driving. Right. You know what I find amusing you know, you have all these shootings and stuff at different schools. They they take the kids and they, they go through the same thing that they do with the military. Whenever a cop has a shooting with somebody, he goes through the same process that uh, happens with the military people, too. Or a fireman, you know, who's, uh, look at the guys from 9-11 on it. A lot of them are still all jacked up in the head. Yep. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the 9-11 issues, I don't know if you, uh, if any of you guys had a chance to see that the president ask for and, and he's on on defense.gov where uh the president wants has a program where he wants to hire veterans uh, as first responders i don't know if you guys had see, had you get a chance yeah, to I, see that article i saw that link though so i haven't had a chance to read it yet yeah well, he, on february 3rd the president he had he had uh said he wants to uh, continue commitment to improving the employment of, of veterans as they come back and he's got a new initiative to um, to hire veterans as uh, first responders, and of course, when that came out, and I, I read your bio and the work that you were doing, um, and uh, because in your letter that you sent us, you you referenced that conversation that you had about where they said, you know, these people don't really want to work anyways, and how you ended up getting, uh, you know, you the American Legion's Vet uh, of the Year in two thousand, and uh, for the state of Michigan, congratulations on on you. And, uh, you know, to get the folks out there to, to make that happen. I think it's good that finally maybe we're starting to see more of that other than just a preference on some sort of state department or, you know, an additional five points if you go into the post office or something like that if you're a veteran in the sense that right. you could maybe come in and really start thinking about these folks, um, you know, being being quality quality workers for your organization. I'm, I, I was pleased to see that, that they're going to try to bring in. I was too. Yeah, more uh, first responders. 
Yeah, um, well, you, we, it's interesting you mentioned the American Legion because they're the ones, along with the other veteran groups, that actually pushed that. That wasn't that wasn't a brain fart from Congress. That was uh, veterans groups <laughs> that pushed that. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're the ones who caused it to be in the forefront of everyone's mind. You you realize how many vets that are going to be on the ground that don't have jobs? They have the highest unemployment rate yep. of any group in the United States. Right. Yeah, we're, we're coming. We're coming close to the end of our oh, time. No. There's one. There's one last um, thing I want to. I want to talk with uh, Doc with it, and that's your your price or what is it? The price tags yes. series that you're doing. Yeah. Yes. Um, I would really that because I I've been looking through those those uh, paintings this morning and they're they're so moving and if they're beautiful. Could, well done. Yeah. If you could actually talk, actually Forbidden Fruit was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, James, I gotta love you for that one, man. Um, then you need to go back to Vietnam. I <laughs> uh, couldn't trust myself. <laughs> talk about the price tags uh, series of uh, paintings you're doing, and I think that'd make a good wrap up for the yeah, show. Agreed. Well, price tags. Uh, actually, I'd done a painting uh, a while back which started that, and I. I I reference only Vietnam, but uh, the more I, I started thinking about that, and this, this also plays uh, into what we were just talking about with the returning vets from Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, I think the Vietnam vets have done a lot of uh, work, you know, pushing uh, that they don't, you know, get the same type of treatment the Vietnam vets got when they got back, and I think they've done a great job doing so. But with the, with price tags, uh, I know that uh, my own feeling towards the dog tags themselves. Uh, we wore these dog tags, and as a medic, I got to see a lot of what, you know, where those dog tags went from from the point of wearing them on your neck to getting injured or whatever. And I think we also looked at dog tags as being something very, very special. And um, really, the, the cost of freedom is, <laughs> there's always that cost. And to me, the, the dog tags were kind of... Uh, like symbolic of uh, of being a price tag that's worn around your neck, and, and we all pay that price uh, when you when you serve in a combat role, or even if you're if you're backing those people up, because the families the families as well the families are part of that price tag too. We all pay a price, but the, the paintings themselves are, are being done now for uh, there's a uh, exhibit that's done about every September in, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan called the Art Prize. And this is going to be a series of seven paintings, uh, maybe more. <laughs> as we get a little closer, I may have get a little closer, but uh, and, and make that decision as, as far as how many. But uh, anyway, they, it starts out with the with the hands holding the holding the dog tags, and dog tags themselves. If you want to back it up, uh, dog tags or you know some kind of kind of ID was was worn, you know, in many battles throughout history, but. The, the metal type tags that we, we see now pretty much come from uh, World War II. So this is I'm, I'm trying to put uh, World War II, Korea, uh, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan all as part of this series, and then also to uh, show how it also affects the family. Uh, you know, afterward, if somebody passes on and pays the ultimate price. So that's that's all that is uh, as far as price tags. David. Yep. Gar. It's that time. Yep. Yep. I, I can't believe it's been an hour. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Doc. We really appreciate you coming on the show. We For sure, we get some links to those um, links to your paintings and, 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 the, and the other work that you're doing as well. David, why don't you reach out and give us a shout-out on what we got cooking out there. All right. We got quite a few. Sh- We're getting a lot of shout outs now. So uh, first off to our friend Saida Helms out in California with Helping Hands Worldwide. Keep sending her anything you can. She she greatly appreciates it. And we got Mike Carrado with Still in the Fight. Uh, just saw up on Facebook that they're in production with the Still in the Fight movie. And they're down in Oklahoma taping a master gunnery sergeant or a master sergeant from the Marines. Operation Regeneration, um, check them out, operationregeneration.org. And if you can, give them a little bit of a bump. 
Um, Gunny Wolf down in uh, at Semper Tunes has a stores at Quantico and Lejeune. If you happen to be on either of the bases, stop in, say hi. Tell them that the guys at Standard East sent you. We got American Vets for Equal Rights doing great things. The Graffiti War guys are also doing great things with gathering up the graffiti and starting through it. Um, I still trying to make contact with uh, Jason to see how their their gallery shows went. Gus McCoy has a new look on his webpage. He's also been writing some pretty interesting things of late. And you can also join us on Facebook. And now we have a Twitter feed. Yes. Oh, gar. Well, we got to um, go Twitter, gang. I'm pushing. Yeah, we gotta, you got to do the Twitter. So yep, you can so. follow us on Twitter at at, at, at Ease Network. You can yep. find us at, by going to twitter.com slash at Ease Network. So I think that's all we have. Well, I'll tell you something, Doc. It's always a pleasure when you can when you can run into somebody who's uh, you know really working them themselves forward and and getting a handle on their lives. And it's doubly special, and it really is it really is an honor for us to um, to run into somebody such as yourself who's putting their money and their mouth and their life and their efforts and their time where their values and their belief systems are. As far as I'm concerned, kind sir, you are doing God's work. Actually, I feel like I'm, I'm the one that's blessed, and I have the best life there is. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess uh, the, I'm always thanking everybody else for letting me do this, you know, for them. <laughs> well, for a DBR and Christian here to my left, uh, to James L. Johnson to my right, uh, bringing in uh, Doc here from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm Garland Green from hailing from uh, Natanya, Israel. So uh, thanks for joining us in. Hopefully you'll uh, stick around and be with us next week. 